the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The patience of God is really quite extraordinary, but it is a patience that, at least from the saints in heaven and their perspective, wears thin. We'll talk about that today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Join us. As we come to Revelation chapter 8 today, I'm reminded of 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 8, we finally see some impatience going on with the saints in heaven. How long before we're vindicated, O Lord? How long? And God is finally swift to reply. It's Revelation chapter 8 on the table for discussion here today on Abounding Grace, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. With today's program, our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner. I think a lot of people, including Reformed people, don't really understand the importance of prayer. Now, we know that those who are not Reformed have views of prayer that are sometimes a bit embarrassing. I have a book someone gave me on prayer years ago that says the purpose of prayer is to give God input in the developing of his policies. Absolutely ridiculous. And there is the view that prayer changes things. Prayer changes God's mind. Prayer changes nothing, beloved. It doesn't change God's mind. It doesn't change God's sovereign will. And then when you get to the Calvinist, which I am, they seem to have more spiritual-sounding purposes for prayer. But they also are inadequate. For instance, some Calvinists say that prayer is an exercise of holy affection. That is a good way to show how much you love God. Well, that is true. But it is an inadequate purpose for prayer, especially if you're not living your love out for him in your life. Others say that prayer is an expression of obedience and a a means of preparation for receiving a blessing. That God has commanded us to pray. And if we do, it shows we are being obedient. And it also prepares a way for God to bless us. Now, those are true. But you see, the problem with all of these definitions of prayer is that it's all about me. They are all man-centered, even the ones that are more spiritual sounding. Whereas prayer in the Bible is a real power in the world. It is a God-ordained means toward reaching God's ordained ends. 
There are some things God has promised to do only if we ask him. Not because he's dependent upon it, but because that is just the way he has decreed. So when, one, when God promises his curses upon his enemies and his blessings upon his friends, and we pray for those things to happen, those are the things that will happen. Prayer has a very powerful role in the plan of God in this world, in the destruction of our enemies. That in reading the Bible, you see many times during battles in the Old Testament, where there would be first prayer among the people before the war started. And it guaranteed defeat for the enemy the next day. So understand what you have in your hands, as it were, with prayer. You have a divinely predestined means of reaching divinely predestined goals. Most particularly the vindication of God's name. The defeat of God's enemy and the deliverance and exaltation of God's church. So since we are where we are today... I think the reason is not to be found in the greatness and the power of our enemies as if they're just too powerful us to withstand or to change. But I think we are where we are today because of the failure of the church to pray rightly and to do so perseveringly as we see the saints pray in the eighth chapter of Revelation. Listen to this quote from a Scottish theologian by the name of Torrance. The real cause of world disturbance is the prayer of the church and the fire of God. That means that more potent, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. The prayer of the saints and the fire of God move the whole course of the world. They are the most potent, the most disturbing, the most terrifying powers that the world knows. Would to God that we in Christ's church really understood the power of prayer like that. It is through prayer that the Spirit of God comes upon the church. It is through prayer that the voice of the gospel thunders through the clouds of darkness. It is prayer that causes earthquakes and shakes history to its very foundation. End quote. Oh, if we believe that the most potent force in the universe is prayer and the fire of God. And understand... The reason the fire has not fallen yet is because God hasn't smelled any of the smoke of our prayers except maybe a little here and there. Now, I want you to notice whose prayers these are that cause such a great disturbance on the earth and play such a central role in carrying out God's judgment on his enemies. Verse 4 again. And the smoke of the incense... With the prayers of the church members? No. With the prayers of the baptized? No. With the prayers of those who went forward in a revival meeting? No. With the prayers of those who asked Jesus into their hearts? No. With the prayers of the saints? 
That is the only kind of prayer that does any good on this earth. The prayers of the saints. Now, who are the saints? Well, understand that the word saint never occurs in the New Testament in the singular. It is used with reference to the whole group of the people of God. And when the New Testament refers to the saints, it's not simply those people who have died and gone to heaven that they now somehow are super spiritual and now we can pray to them like the Roman Catholics believe if we get in trouble or need assistance in selling our home or finding a job. Saints is a word that simply means those who truly belong to God. Those who are the elect and who are separated from the world's system. Those whom God has called out of darkness into his light. And now because of that, he has powered them to live saintly, godly, holy lives. And the people whose prayers rise higher than the ceiling are those who are saints. Not simply those who profess to be Christians, but those who are truly godly in the way that they live. Oh, not perfect but who are godly in their lives. And when they pray for God's vindication upon the earth, mingled with the incense of God's intercession, then God's angels use those prayers to send the fire of God's judgment upon the earth and the destruction of God's enemies. Beloved, God's enemies will be destroyed in this country, just like they were in 70 A.D., Do you know why the apostate Jews were killed? One million in 70 AD and 97,000 sent into slavery. It is because the saints prayed. The faithful people of God prayed that God would destroy his enemies. Rome fell because the faithful people of God prayed that he would deliver his people from Rome's tyranny. And yet we complain about the tyranny of the U.S. government. And we complain about the lawlessness and the immorality and the perversion of this age. Well, why is it still here? Well, first, I believe that there are not many true saints. And secondly, what saints there are, not all of them are praying rightly. They're not praying for the vindication of God. So may the saints begin right here. At RHC, in praying that God would cast his fire from heaven and shake history to its very foundation. Now, in verses 6 through 13, you have the four trumpets of judgment. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and then came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. Now, remember, this is all figurative according to verse 1, chapter 1. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, what is this third? Well, we'll see in just a minute, because that's the most important question in these remaining verses. The second sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became like blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life died. And a third of the ships were were destroyed. 
The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So whatever these trumpets mean now, they're coming out of this book from Revelation 5. And this book is about how Christ administers the covenant curses upon apostate Judaism and tyrannical Rome. And the covenant blessing upon God's faithful people. And now these these trumpets announce an astonishing judgment. You get really a very moving picture here. And by the way, notice the similarities of these judgments and those that befell on Egypt. For instance, in Revelation 8-7, it is reminiscent of Exodus 9-18, which was very heavy hell that fell on Egypt. Revelation 8-8, reminiscent of Exodus 7-19, the water turned into blood. Revelation 8-12, reminiscent of Exodus 10-21. Darkness. If you know your Bible, the first thing that should hit you when you hear these trumpets and the judgments they will bring upon apostate Judaism and all the enemies of God is, oh, that sounds a lot like ancient Egypt. This sounds like the plagues that God sent upon Egypt back when they, he destroyed them. So here you see God's enemies being compared to Egypt hardening its hearts against Almighty God and refusing to release his saints from bondage. The wrath and judgment of God descends upon our enemies to destroy them and to release the saints so they may enter their promised inheritance. Here the enemies of God in the first century and in any century who are viewed as despot Egypt that did everything they could to keep God's people under submission. But God's judgment destroyed Egypt just like it destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, just like it destroyed Rome in the early 400s, just like it has and will destroy any nation that persists in its tyrannical oppression of the church of Christ. But the main thing to bear in mind, Listen to this, is that Jerusalem in 70 AD is compared now to Egypt. That's an astonishing thing. And this is the reason for the 30 minutes of silence. This is the most astonishing thing in the whole chapter. The Jews are now like their ancient captors, no different than Egypt. So just as God destroyed Egypt... In 70 A.D., he destroyed apostate Israel. You also see other reasons for knowing our text is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. For instance, it is said a mountain is cast into the sea. 
Mountains in the Old Testament are symbolic of the kingdoms of the world. And most particularly in Isaiah 2, Israel is described as the mountain of the Lord that rises above all the hills. So here you have reference from the Old Testament of Israel and it's destroyed and cast into the fire. But one of the most telling phrases is in verse 13. We saw in verse 12 how the sun goes out, how the moon turns to blood, how the stars fell. And we saw that whatever that is used, whenever that is used anywhere in Scripture, it is never to be taken literally. It is the sign of the destruction of a culture. When those things happen, that is lights out for the culture. And in 70 AD, it was lights out for ancient Judaism. <coughs> Verse 13. And I looked and I heard an eagle. And I don't know if you know it, but the symbol of Rome was an eagle long before it was ever a symbol of Nazi Germany. Two very tyrannical forms of government. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of three angels about to sound. Now, here Deuteronomy 28 verse 49, which is one of the curses that is being poured out now on Jerusalem. <coughs> the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth as an eagle swoops down. A nation whose language you shall not understand shall destroy you. I will bring upon you, Israel, for your apostasy, a nation a long way from here. And Rome was a long way out in the Mediterranean. Like an eagle. And the symbol of Rome was an eagle. And in Matthew 24 where Jesus is explaining about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, notice this telling phrase. Wherever the corpse is, now the New American Standard Bible says vultures, but the Greek says eagles. Whenever the corpse is there, the eagles will gather. And who did Luke 21 say gathered in Jerusalem, which was a sign of that their destruction was at hand. It was the armies of Rome symbolized by the eagle. So here you have these terrible blasts of the trumpet against apostate Judaism for rejecting Christ and rejecting the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Now it also says that the waters became wormwood and bitter. Beloved, that most likely symbolized a reversal of God's blessing on Israel. Listen to Exodus 15, verses 23 through 27, and you'll see why I say, putting the wormwood in the water, causing the water to be bitter, was a reversal of what God promised his faithful people. Exodus 15, 23 through 27. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was called, it was named Mara. Verse 25. Then he, Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he, God, 
made for them a statue and a regulation, a, a, um, uh, yeah, a regulation, and there he tested them, and he said, If you will give your earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elan, where they were 12, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the waters. Now God is saying, if you obey me and are faithful to me, I will give you sweet water. And I won't bring any of the plagues upon you that I brought upon Egypt. Implying, if you are disobedient to me, I will give you bitter waters. And I will not save you from the plagues of Egypt. So in Revelation 8, you've got allusions to the plagues of Egypt and to the bitter water because God is reversing his blessings upon Israel. All because Israel had turned against him. Now, before we close, let's address this one-third mentioned throughout this text. That is probably the most difficult part of this whole thing. Maybe. What is this one-third? It says, when these trumpets sounded, fire fell to earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees, a third of the sea became blood, a third of the creatures died, a third of the ships were destroyed, a third of the rivers and the springs of water became bitter. Verse 12, a third of the sun and of the moon and a third of the stars were darkened. Now, before I give you what I think this third is, understand a couple of things. Understand that this is directed at apostate Jerusalem. You must not let that out of your mind. Second, although a third is not a majority, it is a very significant, a very, very significant judgment for a third of all these things to be destroyed. So what is it? Well, let me give you what R.J. Rushdoony thinks, and I definitely think he is right. Rushdoony believes we have reference here to the Old Testament law of inheritance. So let me read you those laws and then explain how he applies it. Zechariah 13.9. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Then in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the enslaved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. Now here's what Rush Dooney thinks. He thinks the two parts are the people of God and the heirs of Christ. And the third part is the unregenerate world. The unregenerate apostate Jews given over to destruction. And I think that is right. But 
If you do have a better explanation, that's okay. Just let me know what you think it is. So the point is that a significant minority of these Jews were destroyed. And it was only God's faithful, his sealed people that survived. And whenever God's wrath falls upon an apostate nation, he watches after and he cares for them, beloved. So there we have the great eighth chapter of Revelation. God's declaration that if his elect earnestly and consistently pray his promises, he will destroy our enemies, but he will shield and protect his people. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB, that stands for Post Mailbox, number 402-1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm